Good morning, everybody. Well, you guys already know my name. Thank you. My name is Ben. It's good to be here with you. It is good to be here with you. It's really good. I'm glad to be here. We are in a series on the gospel according to Mark. And today, um, we, I, I've, I struggle sometimes. I get very excited about the Bible. And I tend to have this sort of feeling when I read a certain passage and I really drill down on it and I really hone in on it and I think to myself, my gosh, this is the most important passage for our generation right now. <laughs> and then I get to the next one and I say, my goodness, this is the most important passage for the congregation to hear. And then we get to the next one. So I'm kind of feeling that way today, but I sort of feel that way all the time. So there you go. I have, um, this is a, this is an old and new conversation today. This is, a, this is a systems and structures conversation today. And this is a, a loaded conversation that could be potentially uh, volatile. So I want to be very cautious as we walk through it. And so I'm going to open up with a little um, illustration that I hope will set the, the, set the tone to let you know where we're going and then also where we're not going, okay? So this past, uh, I don't know how long it's been, probably two, three months, through the, through the end of the summer up till now, uh, my daughter Annabelle here and I, and then uh, my boy Wesley, we've been working on a treehouse in the backyard. It's been quite the project, one of those projects that just keeps getting more complex and larger. So I used to have a backyard and it was a nice treescape and now there's a 22 foot high thing standing in the middle of it. Well. I came to the place where I had the walls built and I needed to side this thing so that water couldn't get in. And I want to do it on the cheap, so I'm using thin fence boards. I thought that'd be good if we laid them horizontal. And then I needed to cut a bunch of fence boards at the exact same length. So I've got my chop saw out there and I set my stopper and, it, and I develop a perfect system. I need to cut 49 and a half inch boards. I measured the bottom of my wall and I thought, there we go. So I set it all up and then there you go. I could take a board, set it on the table, chop it, good to go. Set the next one against the stop, chop it, good to go. And then each cut and I could develop this whole pile of boards, all exactly 49 and a half inches. It was beautiful. Saved me all kinds of time until I started actually nailing them to the wall. And then I realized that my beams weren't perfectly plumb vertical. And so I got about halfway up the wall, you know, I've got the nail gun out and we're tacking them on and, and up we go and pretty soon 49 and a half inches isn't quite cutting it because my beams go out a little bit, you know, don't tell anybody, it's embarrassing. <laughs> well, here's the thing, I developed a great system and it worked really well for producing 49 and a half inch boards. But because I got, and it, and it was efficient, it got the job done. But as I proceeded, I, I was locked into that system and I didn't pay attention to my reality. And so by the time I continued on halfway up the side of the wall, my system was no longer helping me. It was actually working against me, even though it had started out very well. You might say, well, what, what was my real problem here? And I think an easy knee-jerk answer might be something along the lines of, well, halfway up, you were still doing it the old way. Because it was old, it was bad. 
But I think you can see just in that silly anecdote, really, that that wasn't the problem, was it? It wasn't just that my 49 and a half inches, because it was an old measurement, was a bad measurement or an obsolete measurement. It was that I hadn't paid attention to my changing reality. I think that my problem was a lack of intention, a lack of thoughtful intention. I just kind of got into the motion of cut them, roll, cut them, stack them, cut them, stack them. I wasn't thinking about each board. I wasn't thinking about where it was going to go, and I wasn't asking, is this actually going to fit where I need it? The system had offered me ease and efficiency, and I was able to get used to it very fast, and I liked it, and it did well, but by not paying attention to my reality, I missed the point at which the system totally lost its ability to help me. Now, I mention this up front because at first glance, today's passage might sound something a little bit like, old is bad, good is new. But you'll see that such an interpretation, I think, misses the heart of what Mark is going to teach us. You will see that this passage is about intention, the why question. Why do we do what we do? Why are we doing the things that we're doing? And this passage is about our attitude. It's going to be about the why question, our methods. Why do we do the things we do? And then what is our attitude? What is our attitude in a world that is changing? I don't need to argue long on that. <laughs> like we can look around and say, yeah, this thing is changing very quickly. It sort of always has been. Okay, so we're in Mark chapter 2. And just to sort of set the context here, Jesus has just been hit with some pretty strong attitude particularly coming from the religious lawyers in the community. These are the guys who, it's a little bit tough to know who they are exactly, the grammatus or the scribes, the Pharisees in this place. These are people in the community who have some authority, but they have a real problem with Jesus. They're starting to show that a little bit. And uh, they, are, they are interested in a sort of formal dignity, a proud standing, and these opposers to Jesus are ones that, in the previous passage that Pastor Daniel preached on last week, uh, they're opposed to sinners, and they have a system, they have a way of operating that would say, we, stay, we steer clear of these kinds of folk. They don't come to our table, we don't do stuff with them. They're contagious, perhaps. And Jesus is hanging out with these sinners, these tax collectors. And this is really, really kind of rocking them. He had table fellowship with them. And by sitting with them, Jesus wasn't saying, oh, cool, I'm just going to start doing what everybody's doing so I can belong. He wasn't sinning. He got, he got face-to-face and personal with sinners because he wanted to help lift them up. Okay? But... These observers and critiquers, they looked at Jesus and they said, my goodness, this guy has got it all wrong. He's doing it incorrectly. And this morning's story is going to pick up right after that controversy, at least textually. We have to be a little bit careful here because we're not sure of the chronology. I don't know if this literally happened right away next. It probably did not. Mark seems to group these five stories that we're working through right now in terms of theme, not necessarily timeline. And there's a little note for you, a side note on reading your New Testament, reading your Gospels. The Gospel writers are not news reporters. Remember that. 
it's not right to go to them and say, these guys are giving me a play-by-play exhaustive account of everything that happened in the order that it happened. We have lots of examples in the Gospels themselves that would suggest there was a lot more that happened that wasn't recorded. And we have different places within the four Gospels where the chronology or the timeline, it doesn't jive. And that's okay. So when people come to you and they say, well, it says in John that it happened at this time, and it says here it happened another time, you can say, yeah, I know. That's no problem. They weren't trying to be news reporters. They were telling the story of Jesus and what he had come to do, okay? So just remember that as far as New Testament stuff. Now, we'll pick it up in Mark chapter 2, verse 18. I'm going to read through 22, but right now I just want to start with the first two verses. Mark 2, verse 18. Once, when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting... Some people came to Jesus and asked, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees do? And Jesus replied, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them. That's good. Jesus likes to do this, doesn't he? You ask him a question, he says, great question. Let's talk about a wedding. (laughs) It's like, what are you talking about? He's always kind of catching people off guard, you know? He's, He's spinning them around a little bit. Let's talk about weddings. I think he says, bro, listen carefully. Or probably there were more, so brosifs would be more appropriate. Listen carefully to what I'm gonna say. I'm talking about when it's time to party. And right now it's time to party. And you need to know that. You know, that's kind of a Portland uh, paraphrase, but this is essentially where he's going. He's saying, I get what you're asking. That's a fair question. There's a time and a place for everything, but right now, the time is celebrating. You might say, all right, Jesus, that's cool, but why, why this discussion about weddings? Why are you talking about weddings? We're just asking you about why you're not doing things the way you're supposed to be, which is right now you're supposed to be fasting like our religious elite are, or like the disciples of John were. What are we talking about weddings for? Well, I think there's, there's a couple of reasons. And the first one is that the wedding imagery is so vivid, and it has woven into it a true sense of joy, Okay? deep sense of joy. It is hearkening back, if you will, to the passage that Pastor Daniel has already read, back to many of the Isaiah and other prophecies and parts of the Old Testament that talk about God's ultimate relationship with mankind, his people, to be like a wedding, to be where he would be bonded together with them so tightly and so closely It'd be an inseparable, full-fledged, covenantal bond, you know? And this has been imagery that has come through the Old Testament, so that's part of it. Think about a Jewish wedding, okay? So they have a wedding. The couple doesn't get in a car with a bunch of tin cans behind it and drive off to a honeymoon. They hang out for at least a whole week, and their home becomes an open house, And everybody is invited to come over, but not everybody, all of their wedding guests, which are going to be their closest personal friends and family. 
And for a week ago, they are going to feast and celebrate and party hard. They're going to have an amazing time together celebrating the goodness of marriage and what has just happened. Now, these guys didn't have, you know, this is an ancient world. Life was significantly more physically demanding and difficult than I think many of us experience today. So a whole week to just celebrate and be with one another was a really cool thing. It was a really cool thing. And the closest friends of the bride and the bridegroom were invited, and they were called the children of the bride bride chamber. So Jesus, he likened this to his small group of disciples that were with him, calling them his, his children of the bride chamber, chosen guests at a wedding feast. There's a rabbinic ruling from this day that actually says, all in attendance of the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances which might lessen their joy. So if you were a guest who got to go to the wedding feast, you had other religious observances that you were to follow, but not during that week if they would lessen your joy in any way. Well, what's what's the point? What's the implication? This is a time of celebration and excitement, and we don't want anything to diminish that. So you're actually exempt from all fasting during that week. And I think that this incident tells us, it gives us this reminder that the characteristic attitude for the Christian life is joy. That is the image that the Bible has used throughout to talk about our bondedness with God and how good it is. I have run into far too many believers who experience their Christian life and their relationship with God and with others in a way where joy could never actually enter the equation. That maybe is the greatest of tragedies. These kind of Christians are perpetually upset consistently pointing out the failings and the faults of others, constantly bummed out because nothing is right, nothing is as it should be, nothing is good enough. And yet the Savior talks about life with him as non-burdensome, as light, as freeing, as a life filled with true suffering. Yes, we suffer, but it's suffering that is seen through a lens of hope and connectedness to God, and restoration. It's a life of love and the goodness of Jesus. And I need to check myself on this often. I do. Because I fall into that mindset, this isn't right, this isn't the way it should be, that's incorrect. And if you're not careful, you can actually find yourself in a Christian existence which is more bitter than it is joyful. The good news is, is if you find yourself there, You can hear the voice of God today and turn that around. And that's a beautiful thing. He will forgive us and pick us up. So the characteristic uh, attitude of the Christian life is joy. And we see that in the way that the wedding is employed through Old and New Testament to talk about our connection. And it's no coincidence that Jesus speaks to those who are coming in and saying, hey man, you're not doing this right And he speaks to them with the image that's kind of like a wink, wink. Hey, this is supposed to be a joyous occasion, fellas. And also, a kingdom, a kingdom occasion. 
This wedding had an image that the Jewish mind would easily and quickly associate with the Messiah and the promised kingdom. I think Jesus here is not so subtly telling them that he is the one they have been waiting for. He doesn't just come out and say it, does he? But he gives some, he gives some language that's unmistakable if they're paying even a little bit of attention. He's the bridegroom. I mean, he's more or less said that, right? He's the bridegroom. And on this wedding day, he has his people with him. It's happening right now. He has invited his closest guests, and now they are feasting, not fasting. For so many, many hundreds of years, the people of God, thousands of years, the people of God have had religious systems and structures that were built some of them by God, some of them by human beings. They were built for the purpose of worship and engaging in a real relationship with God. That was good, yeah? That's a good thing. If you wanted to belong to God's people, there was a very specific way of doing that. If you wanted to worship God, there were detailed instruction sheets that everybody followed. They weren't crazy, self-righteous maniacs who were trying to earn their way into heaven. They were regular Jewish folks who wanted to love one another and love God. And for a very, very long time, that meant doing things like observing certain food and certain dress and certain cleanliness laws. It meant taking offerings to the temple and sacrificing. It meant observing the big Jewish feasts. It meant observing the prescribed Day of Atonement fast. There was one fast that all Jews were prescribed by the Bible to do. They had to, had to follow that. And then there were other systems and structures that they had invented on their own so that they could worship God in patterned and helpful ways. We see a little bit of the human condition there. Structures and systems are not our enemy automatically. They can be. But it was helpful for them to do certain things. You think of, say, Hanukkah. Hanukkah wasn't a prescribed, um, it wasn't a prescribed festival that they had to do, according to the Bible. They came up with that around 164 BC. And the point there was there had been an overthrow of the temple, and they launched the Jews a big revolt, and they were able to take it back, and they were able to reestablish good worship in the temple and so forth. And they said, let's, let's make this a feast that we celebrate each year. And they called it the Festival of Lights or Hanukkah. It was a way that they invented, they created a way to continue worshiping God. The fasting that we're talking about in this passage is another one of those things. It wasn't required fasting per se. They decided to fast every second and fourth day of the week. And they would fast from sunup to sundown. And so these guys had watched different members of the religious community fasting this way. And they wonder why Jesus, as a teacher, who has at least enough authority to have his own disciples, is not falling in line with the way that things are supposed to be. This kind of fasting, why would you fast like that? What was the point? Well, there were probably lots of different reasons to fast. I was just gone a couple of weeks ago. I was out of my home for a whole week, and I, when I came home, imagine how I felt seeing my wife and children again. You know, distance makes the heart grow fonder kind of thing. 
There's times where a great way to experience your appreciation for what God has given you is to do without it for some time. So fasting can be really helpful along those lines. Sometimes we fast, or they would fast in seeking God's will in a big decision. Sometimes fasting after a time or during a time of repentance, maybe after a time of loss or heartbreak for mourning or so forth. Notice, though, fasting was not a happy time. So they had, they had prescribed fasting. They had developed other ways to fast. They had lots of reasons to fast. Some of you might have already noticed that these people were looking for observable fasting. Did you notice that? Why don't we see you fasting? That's interesting. We know later Jesus will talk about fasting, and he'll say, when you do that, if you do it, if you do it in a way that it is helpful to you, it's not going to be uh, showing everybody that you're fasting. That's just trying to get your props and demonstrate to everybody that you're super religious. These guys would actually whitewash their, they'd put white powder on their faces and wear disheveled and especially dirty clothes. Oh, I'm fasting today. Look at how holy I am. That's not good. So there's that kind of stuff going on. It can go wonky. It can be very helpful. But they were wondering, why don't we see you fasting? We know that some of these religious elite would, would be very upset with Jesus and I think that if we look at that attitude, we have to sort of think for ourselves. Anytime that we're about to draw attention to ourselves to prove to others that we're doing good, we should probably hit the brakes a little bit and rethink that. It's probably not a good way to roll. Jesus is always trying to drive us beyond the question, do you follow the rules? I think because any fool can follow rules. That's easy, isn't it? He's always trying to drive us beyond that question. His point is always bigger. He's not merely trying to scold people for not following rules. He's asking, are you becoming the kind of person who really, truly, genuinely wants to follow the ways of God? Is that where your heart is? Are you becoming driven by your love for God and for others? The methods of worship, the practices, the things you do, are they moving you toward that? That's a, good, that's a good measure. Still, I don't think that's really the main point here, and I think the main point in our text is much bigger. He is proclaiming to them, hey guys, that day that you have long awaited you've been praying for, you've been looking for, that day is here. All of those festivals that you have observed for so, so long have been preparing you for this day. All of that Torah, all of those beautiful and good instructions in the law were given to help you know me and recognize me when I arrived. And all of what it has meant to be Israel, God's people, the chosen ones, all of that, all of it was directing you to become the kind of people who would recognize me, who would welcome me on my day of arrival, on the wedding day, and now that day is here. That's why we're not fasting. All that stuff you've been doing was for this, he's saying. And just notice, 
Right, right there, we might say, all right, that's fantastic. Now my sort of anarchist leanings have biblical support. We can throw away all structures and systems, and I can wheel off into whateverism in terms of morality and whatever I want. This is what God set us free for. We might think that, but then verse 20 comes. Did you see it? Verse 20 really hits you. Uh, we're not going that route yet, so... I'll read 19 and 20 so we stay in the text. Jesus replied to the what? Do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them. Verse 20 though. But someday the groom will be taken away and then they will fast. Okay. So this is not a passage that says following instructions is bad or even that systems and structures are bad. That's what fasting would be, isn't it? It's certainly not a passage that says fasting is bad. It says, yeah, they're going to start fasting again later, just not right now. And if they fast again later, they're going to have times where they don't eat food and there's going to be reasons and they'll be disciplined and there'll be structure and they'll have a system to it. We can assume all of that. He says they'll fast again. We know that he's not saying fasting is bad because later the apostles and disciples will teach us. Be men and women who are characterized by prayer and fasting. This is part of Christian practice throughout the entire history of the Christian church. So what is he getting at here? Well, I think it's a picture of the beginning of of the kingdom. Jesus is not here on the scene permanently yet. And our story which is probably happening around 30 AD. He was here, genuinely, in the flesh. And that was a true celebration time for him and for his closest people, his guests, if you will. But he knew that he would be taken away. Now, that's a violent verb in this context. The wedding, the the bridegroom is not taken away from the wedding ever. The guests depart, they go home. But to have the bridegroom taken away is a violent image. Jesus is foreshadowing, isn't he? You can see it. He's foreshadowing that he's going to be pulled right out of this scene. And he doesn't give a timeline. He just kind of leaves it hanging there. Now, to commit to fasting is to commit to a structure that governs your eating. It's a system you submit to, a discipline that has great value, like many other spiritual disciplines. And yet, right now, with him present there, that wasn't the time. And then after he departed, I think that we as believers entered again into a time of waiting and longing for the Savior to return. And so much of our fasting today is oriented on us trying to align our hearts, our appetites, our will with God. And so it is once again useful. It can be very helpful In our post-Jesus' resurrection world, we do long for him to return. This is good. But if Jesus is physically present, sitting here in the room with you, it would just be silly if you you said, sorry, friend, we're we're fasting right now, uh, waiting for you to get here. (laughs) You know, it'd just be odd. So if Jesus is in your living room, don't do that. You might say, all right, cool, we've now tackled these first three verses, but now we have these really interesting metaphors that pop up to close the passage out. 
And they are, I think you can see their connection, but this is where we have to be especially careful. So we've had the question, and Jesus has answered, and he has said, there'll come a time for fasting. And now pick it up with me in verse 21 and 22. There's two metaphors here, one in each verse. He says, besides, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the wine would burst the wineskins, and then the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. Okay. What is he getting at? I think Jesus was under no delusions about his proclamation to the world thus far. He did not think that his message was mild. He knew that what he was doing was intense, and it was radical, and it was different than what the world had ever seen. He comes so far in Mark as the great and holy leader that John the prophet attested to, prophesied about, but then he comes and wants to be baptized like a common sinner. He comes as a Jewish teacher, and yet he doesn't seem to know better about Sabbath rules and who and what can be done as far as healing on the Sabbath. He touches a leper. He treats sinful people with kindness and has table fellowship with them. None of this fits with the way that things were supposed to be according to their system. He is not doing it right. Now, in that last statement, I have talked positively about their system in many ways. But like any system, it can get wonky. And you see here, as they are really, really suspicious of Jesus, that some of their ways of living for God have actually started to cloud their ability to see God. So Jesus very kindly and humbly but clearly tells them that if you want to take the kind of life that he is now offering to people, true life, truly bound to the life giver, it's not going to work to try to cram this life into an old system of worship and an old structure. This era calls for elasticity. This new era calls for an expansion. We're now expanding upon what has come before. This is not because old things are bad or old things are inherently or automatically just obsolete. He's not telling Jewish people that they are now going to have to stop being Jewish and throw everything that they have known away in terms of their lives with God and with one another. Sometimes we've interpreted things that way, but I don't think that that's right. He's not trying to do away with them. He is saying that something greater is now afoot. And the time that we have been waiting for has come. And when God would break in and draw all nations to himself. In fact, that's kind of what he's been working at this whole time. And if you have a bad attitude about this change, you're going to be in for a rude awakening. I think this is Jesus Sort of his, what he's doing and saying to people is suggesting this. I'm here for a reason. And the reality of God's work in this world is going to change. The ultimate goal that God has for mankind cannot be accomplished with the old system. It can't be fully accomplished. 
nor could it be ever accomplished with any one specific system or structure or method. If you try to take the elasticity and the expansion of this new wine, one that will move religious leaders out of temple buildings and into neighborhoods with people, one that no longer excludes Gentiles or women, children, slaves, and so forth, if you try to take what I am going to be doing now and you try to fit it into your old way of doing things, you're going to wreck what I'm doing and you'll wreck that. You think of the quilt metaphor. I had a, I come from a long line of quilters. My, the men in the Tartine family were all carpenters, and the women were all, and I mean, they were quilted. They quilted everything, and they could, it was amazing. Well, my great-grandma, Sadie Heyman, she made me a quilt out of that old polyester fabric that's like bomb-proof. You can wear it on. All you older ladies know exactly what I'm talking about. That stuff, it looks brand new still. But somewhere along the way, there were four patches in one of the corners that wore out, and somebody patched it with a felt-like fabric, and then once it was washed, all those four squares, they all shrunk down, so the corner was all bunched up, and then eventually it pulled from the thread, and I had a kind of a gaping hole there. Well, Grandma Joyce, who was kind of the seamstress from heaven, she fixed that up with some used fabric some old fabric that had been shrunken already, and so then there was no problem. And it still sits, keeping my little boy warm every night. It's a great quilt. That is the idea. You can't take a new fabric and stick it on old because it's not going to jive well. Think of the wine. Wine was kept in skins, not corked glass bottles like we're more used to today. And when the skins were new, they had a certain elasticity to them. They could flex, but as they aged, they became hard and unyielding. Leather does that. So when the wine was still fermenting, it's giving off CO2 and other gases. And in a new wineskin, there was some pliability, and it could flex and, and accommodate for that. But if you put that new wine that was still fermenting into the old... There was no flex in the old, and it would split it, it would burst, and as it says right in the word, it would blow up. And now the skin is ruined and the wine is lost. Nobody wins. I think that Jesus is helping us to see a need for a certain elasticity in our minds. I think it's fatally easy to become set in our ways. And when we do, we become blind. Sometimes we become very upset, sometimes even very prideful, condescending toward others, looking down at them for doing it wrong. When our minds become fixed in sin, and I'm speaking to every age group in this room, okay? I really am. I am absolutely just as prone as the next person to get set in my ways, even as a 37-year-old. But I think 18-year-olds and younger, we can get set in our ways. We, this works for me, 49 and a half inches. Cut the board, cut the board. I don't even care if it works. Just cut the, now I have a pile of worthless lumber. He's helping us to see in principle, this is a broad level principle. Elasticity in our minds is helpful. Well, you might say, well, we already have all the truth that we need. It's right in the Bible. I don't want to flex on that. That's not elastic. 
I think you're right. I think that's true. But we'll see in next week's passage where the same critique comes to Jesus in a different context. And he will say to them, yeah, you have a truth from the Bible, but you have read the Bible incorrectly. You call something true that's actually false. You need a new truth. I think this is why the apostles will later say to us, hey, men and women of Central Bible Church, remain teachable. Always remain teachable. You're going to be far better off as a community of learners than of professors. Always telling everybody the right thing about everything. Listen and learn. The big challenge to the Christian is to become a disciple, a matesis, a learner. We're always to be learning, thinking about our reality, where we're at and how things are changing and what needs to change with it. More specifically, I think he's helping us see a real danger lurking in every structure and system. It's like gasoline, I think, in many ways. Gasoline is, is good with all of its faults. Most of us are here today because of gasoline in some way. Yeah? It, it can be helpful. I know it's got a bunch of problems too. But you have this thing that can be really helpful and really good, but if you don't use it well, it can be awfully poisonous and it could burn you hard. So I think that it's something like that. Systems and structures of worship are good, but they're also dangerous. When I leave, Jesus said, you're going to fast again. But surely he means for this fast to be intentional. When you fast after I leave, it's going to be for a reason, not just because it's the fourth day of the week. You follow me? Not just because we fast on the second and the fourth, and that's what our forefathers did. We're fasting for a purpose, for a reason. Fasting to discipline, fasting to focus, fasting to increase love and thankfulness and appreciation for God. But if it becomes a thoughtless routine and a way to see who is in and who is out, oh, they fast on Thursdays, they're very good, like me, then it has become a painful poison. And so it always has this possible benefit and great danger, you know? You've got to handle systems and structures really carefully. I think the actual imagery here of fabric and of wine and wineskins is not as important. The big warning that we need to pay attention to is this. You will experience massive loss through inappropriate and thoughtless action. That's, now, and I can't, you've got, to just, you've got to stand in front of a mirror and just get honest with yourself about this stuff. Am I holding to the things that I'm doing just because? Or are they helping me become more loving and gracious and forgiving and generous and patient and kind, more Christ-like? And if they're not, if my patterns and ways are actually causing me to be constantly angry with people, it's become poisonous now. And I don't want you to have poison in your life. Eradicate that. Repent from that. Receive God's forgiveness and move into a full Christian attitude of joy. It's totally possible. Sometimes in my life I have thought it's not, but it is. These religious elite, they saw Jesus as not doing it the right way. And I think Jesus more or less says, right way according to whom? Because the way I see it, this is not a time to mourn. It's a time to anticipate of the coming of the Messiah. It's not time to anticipate. I'm here. 
This is celebration time. And they respond, they say, no, it's not celebration time. We know that because of our system. It's the second day of the week, which means good God followers would be fasting. That's what you would be doing if you really followed God. We, we know. We've devised a way to know. <laughs> and Jesus says, I don't think your way is really legitimate. The fast was intended to help us anticipate this moment, this moment that's happening right now. Yeah, 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 we know you're kind. You're disobeying God. I am not disobeying God. Well, we've created a way to tell. And right now, by not fasting when you're supposed to be, you're disobeying God. Judgment handed down, yeah? And that was the poison of their own systems and structures. Let's not do that. By submitting to the way of doing things rather than to the person of God, I'll say that again, by submitting to the way of doing things rather than to the person of God, they were only able to see the shallow surface of themselves and of one another. That was the depth to which their gaze could pierce. Skin, that's it. Surface stuff. They literally could not see God in their midst. And the disciples could. That's cool. Can we see God in our midst? Or are we overly focused on ministry methods and structures and the quote right or quote wrong way of doing things? Are we willing to admit that Jesus wants to expand his invitation into his life out to every one of our neighbors through us? Or do we have some methods and systems and ways of doing things that actually keep us closed off from the world that he is trying to bring light to? We have to ask that. And if we can say to ourselves, oh man, I've been missing the ball, we don't then say, I'm so guilty and stupid, I can't do anything right. We say, I gotta change that i got to get back on track with Jesus. And he is always there saying, yeah, let's do this. He loves you. I grew up in a Christianity addicted to systems, structures, and methods. Men and women, I would say to you that we live in such a world still today. And I am not interested in doing the kind of thing that looks like arguing and debating with one another constantly. I believe that the word of God is teaching us to have elasticity in our minds, to remain pliable, and to recognize that God's kingdom is expanding. And as it expands into a world that is rapidly and radically changing, look, it's almost in two more weeks, our whole country will change. And we don't even know how that's going to be as pastors and leaders and just people with minimum wage laws and new laws and restrictions on speech and this and that. It's going to constantly change. And we're going to have to be quick on our feet, able to accommodate, able to meet and live wisely in a world that's always fluctuating. And as we do, we can expect by looking at the Savior's example that people will complain and people will consistently point at us. They do at me often. You're doing it the wrong way. That's incorrect. And I think what we can say is let's just expect that'll be the case and that's okay. If we keep our attitudes in check, if we remain loving toward God and one another, and we hold true to the word of God, 
we will experience true joy with the Savior. We will be free to live and worship in new ways that reflect a changing world. This is good. We will be free to live and worship in old ways that reflect the value and miraculous beauty of generations that have come before upon whose shoulders we stand. And we can worship with great respect for our forebears. This is good. We will experience all kinds of, what in the world are you idiots doing? That's okay. They said that to Jesus at almost every turn. We'll experience people not understanding why so-and-so is doing this or that. But rather than being suspicious fighters, we will seek one another's good and trust that Jesus is with us. We can trust that the Spirit of God is leading each of us. That's freaky right there. If you really believe that, if the Spirit of God is really leading every Christian in this room, we're going to have a very interesting community, yeah? And we can trust that. We can trust that the Spirit of God is going to lead people differently, and people are built differently. That's okay. We can trust that He's leading each of us as Christians into his kingdom, and his kingdom is going to be elastic and expansive as it moves into every single corner and shadow of this world, and there will be filled with light and hope for everybody who needs to know Jesus. All right? Pray with me. Jesus, we do love you, and we do trust you, and you are very odd to us. You do things that just, they made no sense in your day. I think they make even less sense today. Sometimes I've suspected that if you popped in to one of our church services in the modern world, we might just kick you out. And we're sorry about that. Jesus, we are prone to wander in a way that chains us back up to systems and structures in this world. Help us to see the truth that you alone give life, not a method You alone bring salvation, not a system, not a structure. It is you and your life like the wind, like breath in the spirit. Your life is absolutely phenomenal. Help us to trust you and to believe in you in each each day of our life, in each decision. Help us to make charitable judgments of one another. Help us to be free to worship you in the way that you lead us. And help us to be kind-hearted toward every other church member and Christian in this town so that we would be a community of peacemakers. You have been great to us. You are great and greatly to be praised. We love you. Amen.